You're about to hear my conversation with the McKenzie investment strategist, Brent Joyce. We talk all about zombie companies, what they are, why they're a risk to capital markets, and what should be done about them. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schneer and I'm back with Brent Joyce. Brent, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here again. So we're uh, going to take a, a bit of a different conversation this week. Uh, everybody's enjoying their vacation, so we've pre-recorded this episode, and we're going to talk all about zombie companies. Uh, Brent, uh, you and your colleagues have sort of referenced the idea of zombie uh, companies in uh, some of the commentaries that you've put out. Why don't we start by just defining what you mean by a zombie company? Sure. Thanks, Matt. The technical definition is um, someone that calculate the number of zombie companies that, that might be in a particular market is a company whose trailing 12-month operating income does not cover their interest expense over that same period. And what that means is they need to continue to access capital in order to stay afloat. So they're unable to survive without either government uh, supports in some cases or the bond market typically, but um, there's certainly examples from the equity market as well to raise capital in order to, uh, to survive. More broadly, though, there are companies that, you know, the name zombies because they limp along, limp, limping along, right? And they're this walking dead type of, of scenario. And longer term, these companies, not only can they not cover their interest costs, but certainly there isn't any uh, prospect they would be able to dig out from their ever-growing obligations if they need to keep accessing capital just to stay afloat. Great. Um, and uh, and. Certainly, your comments here suggest, and, and what I've, I've seen is that uh, you're noticing a, a large increase in zombie companies uh, over the past years. Uh, when did you start uh, noticing that increase, and when did you start getting concerned over this issue? It really is a question of how, when did it become enabled? And so if you look at the, um, the poster child, I guess, for, for zombie companies and zombification, it's, it's often uh, referred to as well would be Japan and the you know, persistently low inflation, low interest rate environment there, um, bad loans in the banking system that have not been cleaned up. And ultimately, it, it's a, a failure on the part of the system writ large, quote unquote, and, and I put society and governments and capital markets all into that bucket to allow these businesses to either restructure, which is painful, uh, and their social costs to that sometimes with heavy employment footprints potentially in some of these um, sure. older industries, uh, or, or outright fail. So, so Japan's the first example. And then, you know, when you think about the emergency interventions for the financial crisis, the rescuing of uh, things like AIG and, and others in the banking system, there are reasons why that had to happen. And I think the policies that central banks and governments have created over the past 10 to 15 years have a role to play in times of emergency. 
the question becomes, when is the emergency over? And we're certainly having this conversation today with regard to right. all of the supports in the economy. Uh, and the, some of these businesses then should be allowed to fail. Uh, it's all wrapped up in the too big to fail notion. So it's it's been around since the financial crisis, but it does predate that to some extent. And I guess in your view, I mean, the the sentiment that I'm getting from you is that uh, you feel like it's gone too far and that these companies have been allowed to limp along for uh, an undue amount of time. First, am I reading the room uh, correctly uh, on that notion? Uh, and, and second of all, you, you referenced um, policies that are uh, enacted during times of crisis that are important to enact. What is your view on when those should be starting to unwind and how do you how do you make that call? Well, that's um, probably a question that we need a, a number of academics to weigh in on. And in the heat of the moment, you know, if your house is on fire and the fire department shows up, you don't start asking questions about how much water are you putting on. Sure. You know, you just want the fire to get put out. But I do think that we've now experienced 10 plus years of these ultra low interest rates, quantitative easing. Uh, and then now in, in the pandemic, uh, forays into riskier elements of the capital markets on the part of central banks purchasing uh, corporate uh, credit and uh, high yield credit. Right. And I'm I'm not going to suggest that any of those policies should be abandoned as tools. I do think they are useful to the trust element of the system. Same thing with the financial crisis. The consequences of letting the banking system collapse are likely far worse than uh, zombification. And that that's, appears to be the decision that society and, and governments and regulators and indeed capital markets have, have made. But we, I think we can do a better job at trying to unwind or wean ourselves off of these and at least have the conversation about what is the cost of some of these policies, right. the unintended consequences, if you will, and there are some voices uh, on that side of the of the spectrum, but not a whole pile. I see. Um, and and I guess maybe we'll why don't we stick on the notion of costs? What what are you seeing as the costs for the the zombification of these firms? Well, they can really spur a a vicious circle, a vicious cycle where you have low productivity, low growth that it can be difficult to exit because you have businesses that are unproductive, continuing to operate in certain lines of business, certain industries. Uh, that tends to be deflationary. And like it just becomes a self-feeding um, circle. How do you raise rates when you can't do right. that? And these businesses are, are there. The other thing is they're a drag on the economy because they're an impediment to something that, that I firmly believe in, which is the notion of Joseph Schumpeter's um, creative destruction as being inherent in capitalism and something that, although painful, is useful, necessary, and something that we need to embrace. And if you let these companies wander along, you know, half dead, you are keeping resources, whether that's capital, labor, plant equipment, machinery, et cetera, supply chains, tied up in companies that can't afford, they can't afford to pay their bills, let alone to invest in their businesses, invest in their future. Right. And so they have less incentive to adapt and do that. 
Um, they're under the constant um, risk of failure should their pipeline to, to the capital markets get squeezed off. So that's a fragility and a risk in the financial system that we need to contemplate. Um, and, but they can drag down sector-wide investment and employment in an industry. You want vibrant, healthy industries, and those are ones that have a mechanism in place for the strong to get bigger and better and stronger, mm -hmm. and for the weak uh, businesses to be culled and, and purged. That is may sound callous, but it is the system upon which capitalism is founded. Great. And, and maybe just sticking on, on that point with um, with bankruptcies, one of the um, things that I've, I've seen uh, attribute some of the success to the U.S. Uh, in general is their uh, progressive bankruptcy uh, uh, laws uh, when they were coming uh, into to dominance. Uh, you could fail as a business owner and you, it wouldn't uh, you know stick with you for the rest of your life. You're not going to debtor's prison uh, and the like, which was a departure from uh, other capital markets. Um, you know, that said, failure is costly to society uh, in some ways. People lose their jobs. There's there's um, sort of larger economic transformations that happen. What tools um, do you see being used that are that are make that transition a little bit uh, more beneficial uh, and what are, can be used for evil, I guess, and where I'm really trying to trying to think is the difference between fiscal and monetary to address some of these uh, some of these challenges and if if you feel like they play different roles yeah for sure they play different roles the central bank's um, prime directive is to make sure that the banking system doesn't fail and that was uh, evident obviously in the financial crisis central banks were born out of the Great Depression right um, and and that's an important role and banking and the financial sector is a unique industry in that it is solely predicated on trust. You and I put our $10 in the bank and whether we know it or not, the bank lends nine plus dollars of that out into the economy. This is the money multiplier uh, and it's under the expectation that you and I don't uh, both go back to the bank on the same day and ask for our $10 back. Right. Uh, and if we feel compelled to do that because of fear that the bank isn't going to be there the following day, then the system collapses. So having the central banks as a backstop and monetary policy that extends – now I would say that it extends beyond just the banking system because the bond market and credit markets are, are an integral component of um, how our, our financial system functions. That is worth protecting for sure. The question comes back to – um, the extent of the measures that are in place and the length of time that we're willing to have those in place. It appears to me that the evidence would suggest monetary policy, because of its less tangible costs, uh, inflation being, being one of the costs of uh, excessive monetary policy, theoretically at least, we're, we're questioning whether that is the case or not over the past 10 years, and, sure. and there isn't ever more uh, that in question more important today. But fiscal, where you actually have to write a check uh, to something, does appear to be still within the checks and balances proverbial uh, and becomes withdrawn and taken away much more quickly than the monetary supports do. And perhaps monetary policy and central bankers need to cast an eye 
toward the other side of the aisle and the fiscal policy and say, well, if it's appropriate that we're removing these fiscal supports and some of the goals are uh, similar, then certainly we should be contemplating uh, dialing back or removing uh, some of the supports on the monetary side. Uh, great. I guess the, the final area that I'd like to explore a little bit is we've seen um, in conjunction with this rise of zombie companies, particularly lately, some very odd things happening in the market, whether it be the meme stocks uh, that seem to, to be rising up, uh, whether it be sort of crypto uh, or other asset classes that are really, um, call it somewhat odd and, and, and gaining a, a, lot of, um, a lot of value. Um, would you attribute some of these actions to sort of the same principles that are behind uh, zombification of uh, of the broader economy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like it's it's about the enablers. So the central banks and to some extent fiscal authorities that are um, putting this money into the system, it removes elements of risk from a system that is built upon risk. Um, that's what capital markets do. One of their critical functions, I mean, I mean, the most important function for capital markets, in my opinion, is to marry up those with excess capital savers, with those who have um, important innovations or important services to provide and need capital to expand and grow. That, that's job one. But not all idea or innovation uh, is going to be successful. And so you have to have some way of separating the good ideas from the bad ideas, and that's where risk comes in. And equity markets and the bond market in terms of, of the credit angle are the best system, uh, in my opinion, for trying to find the price of that risk. And so when you have interventions into the capital markets, as laudable as they may be, as necessary as they may, may be from time to time, it's important to recognize that they are interventions into a system that has to find, ultimately has to find its own equilibrium and its own harmony. Um, you know, they're invasive species, uh, perhaps to some extent. And, and, you know, you can see all around the world when you have in nature invasive species, they can be disruptive. So what ends up happening? You have a distortion with interest rates, credit spreads, and equity, equity valuations. These are all direct inputs into the price signals that are the efficient allocation of capital. When a business sits down to decide whether it's going to take over a competitor or, or build a new factory or build a new plant, right? they have to go through this cost of capital and sure. justify it. And when that cost of capital is artificially depressed, then those signals get distorted. And I think the vital process of creative destruction becomes less potent. And then the, the other angle to that, I suppose, is regulation. And we've had um, important regulation since the financial crisis. I would say regulation that is all about transparency mm -hmm. and uh, level setting the access to information, whether it be for institutional investors or retail investors, that is something I would applaud and, um, and cheer. Regulation that is outright restraint, we have to be more careful with. So we have limit down curbs uh, when markets uh, head into a free fall. Sure. And we can have um, 
uh, temporary bans on things like short selling uh, when markets have become in periods of dislocation. But there are prescriptive rules around how those get triggered and when they get removed for very good reason. And one of the things that has been in the backdrop of this meme stock uh, phenomenon uh, that's been uh, playing out uh, this year uh, has been the use of options uh, and short selling uh, is being wrapped up into that conversation. Right. And some uh, voices have, have come out to suggest that, well, that is the problem, the short selling. And so let's ban that. And what good is it anyway is the question. And, and there's an answer to that question. Great. You're leaving me in suspense. What's what's the answer to the question? <laughs> well, the view, I guess, is that capital markets are nothing more than glorified casinos. And I take great exception with that. You know, participation in a casino and participation in equity markets both come with the risk of losing money. Yes. Sure. But unlike casinos, capital markets provide a valuable contribution to society. Like we've talked about, they facilitate capitalism and capitalism facilitates innovation. And innovation improves our lives. And without proper price incentives and the risk reward trade off, then we're not going to get as much innovation. Um, a great quote from Truman Capote Failure is the condiment that gives success its flavor. Hmm. Right? People take on risk because they think they have a great idea that can make them money, but also help society. Right? Thank you uh, to Pfizer, Moderna, and all the others whose innovation. Sure came up with the, with the COVID vaccines. So in, part of the ingredient of that is the price discovery mechanism. And options and short selling are just part and parcel or tools of the trade there. If you didn't have short sellers, then the only opinion you would have on a security would be those who like it. Right. I currently own it and I want to sell it. I'd like to sell it at a higher price. So I'm going to want to espouse all the good things about a particular company or security. Um, you know, or, or uh, if, if you don't have short sellers, then that voice of um, cynicism, sometimes it's called, but skepticism uh, is not there or it's not there as, lo as loudly as it otherwise would be. And that is an, an important part of price discovery. Robert Schiller who is the father of the argument that markets are efficient, came back and revisited his hypothesis after a few years and said that one of the caveats he would have liked to have put in the original thesis is that markets have a open forum for a whole variety of different opinions to come together in order to set an appropriate price. And dissenting opinions are necessary. And that's exactly what short sellers are. They're there to, to point the finger and say, we think there's something um, odd here or off here. And there's some good examples in history recently, uh, large ones, where short sellers have uncovered nefarious actors uh, right. and, and provided a very good service. The, the granddaddy is probably Enron. Sure. Uh, but you know, in the Canadian context, we have Sino Forest. And so these short sellers are, are a very good ingredient. Um, I guess a good analogy that I've used is a, a, a kitchen knife's an indispensable utensil, a tool uh, in the kitchen, but it can also cause harm if it's not used properly or it's used by somebody who doesn't know how to wield it uh, effectively. And for capitalists and capitalism and equity markets and capital markets and credit markets, no system is perfect. And from time to time, they do need intervention when they 
fall apart and, and have a temper tantrum. Sure. Uh, but the best systems, including all of these, should grow and learn from their mistakes. Um, capital markets price risk. And you need to be careful if you're going to contemplate removing risks from a system where the risk of loss is, in fact, what disciplines the participants. Great. Well, Brent, uh, thank you for, for espousing on this subject uh, for so long. I think it was uh, very insightful. It sounds like, and, and I'll leave the last word to you, but it sounds like you're looking forward to a return for some sort of normalcy with some of these programs uh, getting uh, pulled back over time. And, uh, and that will improve the health of capital markets. I don't want to put those words in your mouth, though. So uh, final word to you, if you agree with that uh, sentiment or not, and, and when you expect to start seeing some of these programs hopefully be pulled away. Yeah, uh, you've captured my sentiment exactly. Um, capitalism is like a religion for me, and, and I, I get very passionate about these things because I do think it works. Like I said, it's not a perfect system, sure. but it's the best system that I think we have at our disposal. Transparency, disclosure, penalties for bad actors. I'm in favor of all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But we need to be careful um, about some of these uh, distortions and incentives that have been lingering perhaps far too long. And, uh, and it's high time that we start to at least have the conversation about yeah. it. Brent, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Matt. All the best. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 